Are you shocked? Well, this is some of the rhetoric that came from some of the men who helped shape doctrine and theology in the early church. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a book in 1954 called The Jews and Their Lies, and it is still available today. You are listening to Keeping It Israel, brought to you by First Century Foundations. This podcast explores how your Christian faith is connected to Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's your host, Executive Director of First Century Foundations, Jeff Feuders. Welcome to the podcast today. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I've been thinking about this and helping people understand how... Israel really does connect to the church, to Christian faith. And I want to talk about that for a little while here today. Um, I am the oldest in my family, birth order number one. And, you know, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. I usually tell this story that uh, actually I'm the oldest in both of my families. I was adopted and I was the oldest growing up uh, with my two siblings and my adopted family. And then about 11 years or so ago, I actually had the opportunity to meet my birth mother and eventually my birth father. And and here's what I found out. I found out that my birth mother had never had any more children. So I was essentially an only child in her family. And then again, I was the oldest in my birth father's family. Interesting, when I told my wife that, uh, you know, seems like I was an only child. This is what she said to me. She said, that explains a lot. Now, I'm not really sure uh, what she meant by that. But, uh, you know, my dynamic is probably uh, a different message for another day. But I want to talk a little bit about birth order because of how this sort of works out in the in the scriptures. Uh, you know, being the oldest has some perks, doesn't it? I mean, we get to have all of our parents' love and attention for a while when we're young. Um, you know, we get everything new. We don't have to wear hand-me-downs. And your family has lots of pictures of you when you're the oldest. I don't know what happens, but it seems like as other kids come along, there are less and less photos available. And uh, I know that that seems to be the case. Being the oldest has its perks, but it also has its drawbacks. Like, you know, here's a perk. When younger siblings come along, you get to boss them around. On the other hand, you also get to watch your parents becoming increasingly less and less strict with your younger siblings than they ever were with you. That's not fair, is it? Uh, You know, it's kind of tough when you hear that phrase all the time, you should know better. Uh, And then, of course, ugh babysitting. You know, we have to babysit the younger children. But here's why I say this about birth order. The God story that we find in scripture is essentially the story of God doing one thing. It's about his love for humanity and his plan to create and establish a growing eternal family. Now think about this. He started with Adam and Eve and he walked with them in the garden, had relationship with them, told them to have a family. Now, I'm not saying there were hiccups along the way. Of course, you know, family is messy. We we had to hit reboot with Noah and his family. But eventually, though, God's plan to establish this eternal family is routed through a man named Abram that he called to go to a place that God would show him. And God told Abram that when he got there, something special was going to happen. Genesis 12, uh, 1 to 3 says this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's it's here in Genesis 12 that God uses the term nation. Up until now, we've heard about the nations that grew out of the families of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. Uh, but till now, God hasn't directly associated himself with nations. But here in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will make you. And so a few chapters later in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. And in this new covenant, he reaffirms that he will be father to a great nation. And he says this, even though at the time, the only heir that Abram has would be a servant. All of his estate would go to one of his servants. But God still says this, one day your offspring will be like the stars of the sky. And here's the key. The Bible says that Abram believed God and it says the Lord credited that to him as righteousness. But then God throws a twist in the story. It's not only going to be about a family and a nation, but it will also include a land. Genesis 15 and 18, it says on that day, uh, the Lord made a, a covenant with Abram and said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and a whole bunch of other ites. And I say all that to say this, Israel among the nations or the peoples of the world is God's firstborn. He had a plan for them as a nation, and he had a place for them to dwell as a nation in the family of nations. Israel is the firstborn. Now, I didn't say that. It's not original to me. Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, when Moses is going to speak with Pharaoh, God says to him, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Now, notice, uh, he is, Israel is the firstborn son, not the only begotten son. There's a big difference. And we don't equate Israel with Yeshua or Jesus the Messiah. Symbolically, though, Israel is God's firstborn among the nations. It's significant because of the Jewish concept of being the firstborn son. The firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance. And you know what? As a firstborn, I think that's a great idea. The firstborn was considered the favored son. Israel, like all of us, is adopted as God's special son, just like God chose Jacob as the firstborn over Esau. And there's a sense in which all nations, of course, are God's children. But because Israel was favored by God and chosen to be his special people, by definition then, Israel is God's chosen firstborn son. And from the firstborn of the nations... God brings to humanity then his only begotten son. Well, why do I say all that? I say it because it underscores two things. The fact that God has a, a special relationship with two things, the Jewish people 
and the land of Israel. God has made special promises to his people Israel regarding them, their future destiny, and their land. And here's just a couple of examples. Isaiah 43 and verse 1 says, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, and I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Jeremiah 29, 11, verse we love to quote, says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. We love to quote this verse about ourselves, and yet God was speaking this very clearly through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. In order to fully address the subject of Israel and the church, I need to quickly cover one more thing, and that is something called replacement theology. This is something that's been around for nearly 2,000 years, and it seeks to nullify the promises of God made to Abraham and his descendants. You may have never heard this term, but it is something that is deeply embedded into the DNA of many churches and church traditions. And it's a dangerous deception. This is also known as supersessionism or fulfillment theology, and it began to surface in the church as early as the first century AD. And basically what it teaches is that because the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah and had him executed, God subsequently rejected the Jewish people. Now, some even took this further to say that God now despises the Jewish people. Well, you can see where this could lead. These people began to believe that because of this, God then revoked the literal promises that he made to Abraham and his family and replaced them with spiritual promises to the church. In other words, the church supersedes Israel, which is where we get this term, supersessionism. So now you know where anti-Semitism comes from. And I believe it's even much deeper than, than anti-Jewish sentiment in the world and in the church. It's also something that I believe is, is satanic. But can you see how this progresses? This is the kind of thinking that led to Christian persecution of the Jews, even murder in the name of Jesus, if you can comprehend that. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the Holocaust are the most well-known of these hateful and murderous campaigns against the Jewish people. And they are dark and dreadful chapters of Christian history that we would just as soon forget and that we must never, ever repeat. These horrible things were influenced by this dangerous belief called replacement theology. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. Go and do some research. It may surprise you to find that many of the church fathers, including names like Ignatius and Irenaeus, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Origen, Christostom, St. Augustine, and even the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, held very anti-Jewish views. Some of these revered Christian leaders of history used terms like dogs and pigs to refer to Jews, and they considered them unworthy of God's salvation because they, quote, rejected and murdered his son. Irenaeus actually said this. He said, Jews are disinherited from the grace of God. 
Tertullian said God has rejected the Jews in favor of the Christians. And in very colorful language, John Chrysostom said this in a talk called Oration Against the Jews. The Jews are the most worthless of all men. They are lecherous, rapacious, greedy. They are perfidious murderers of Christ, and they worship the devil. Their religion is a sickness. The Jews are the assassins of Christ, and for killing God, there is no expiation possible, no indulgence or pardon. Christians may never cease vengeance, and the Jew must live in servitude forever. God always hated the Jews. It is essential that all Christians hate them. End of quote. Now, I'll just let that settle for a minute. Are you shocked? Well, this is some of the rhetoric that came from some of the men who helped shape doctrine and theology in the early church. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a book in 1954 called The Jews and Their Lies, and it is still available today. And in it, he advocates uh, burning down all synagogues in Europe, among other things. Adolf Hitler often referred to Luther as one of Germany's great reformers and was inspired in part by Luther's anti-Jewish teachings. Now, I, I hope I know what you're thinking. You know, we don't believe any of that in our church. And I pray and even believe that that is true. But what I also believe is that there still are subtle traces of this kind of teaching in our churches today that influences the attitudes that many of us have toward the Jewish people and their practices. And one of these attitudes is the one that says that Jewish people or ethnic Israel no longer have a viable role to play in God's story. This can also lead to an attitude that suggests that ethnic Israel no longer has the right to return to the land of Israel, at least not in the prophetic sense of returning from their exile to the four corners of the earth over the last 2,000 years back to the promised land. And if you believe that, then you also believe that this means that the Jewish people no longer have any claim to the land of Israel and that they are now intruders and occupiers in the land. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I don't have all of this figured out, but I do believe I know a few things. I feel like I know something about the character of God from his word. And because of what I know about God's character, I don't believe that God has rejected anybody. I believe that God is a God of unfailing love and that he is long-suffering and full of mercy. I believe that he is patient and kind and the God of a second chance. I also believe something else about God. I believe that he is a God who keeps his promises. His promises to me, to you and I, to us, and also his promises to Israel. All of his promises. And that's why I believe the Church of Jesus Christ, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, is not only deeply connected to the Jewish people, but even indebted to them. From Israel came God incarnate, Jesus the Messiah. God called Israel to himself as the beginning of the building of his eternal family, the firstborn son, through which he brought the only begotten son to the world so that everyone could be a part of this great family. But Israel was not a means to an end so that God could reject them and cast them aside. 
And so just to kind of close the loop here, I want to bring you to a text in the New Testament. I know that a lot of arguments for the idea that Israel and the Jewish people no longer play a part in God's future plans for the church come from the notion that New Covenant revelation somehow changes the tone of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament so that now everything we read there is an allusion to the future church and not about Israel at all. But that's just not the case. But I, let's go to Paul, the great apostolic missionary of the early church, and see what he has to say in the book of Romans, three chapters, Romans 9 through 11. Now, we won't read them all, obviously, but let's look at some key verses. First of all, Romans 9, 1 through 5 says this. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, he says, and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs, he says, is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. This text begins a section of Romans that's three chapters long that Paul dedicates to speaking about his people Israel. And there's just three things I want you to catch today. First of all, Paul's pain. Paul's pain. Romans 9, 1 through 5. Paul is so troubled in these verses that we've just read by the fact that his people Israel have largely rejected his gospel that he is experiencing a level approaching physical pain. In verse 2, it says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. When I think about anguish, I think about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Why does Paul have such pain? Why does he have this anguish? He says it's because of what's happening with his own people that he wishes that he were cut off from Christ for the sake of his people Israel. This is how upset he is about the fact that many of his race are rejecting Jesus. Notice, he's writing to believers in Rome. And for three chapters here in this letter, he takes time out to talk to them about the Jewish people and the plans that God has for them. He says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. This idea of adoption, first of all, you know, God says, Israel is, is the firstborn nation, adoption of the firstborn nation into the family of God. This is the same word adoption as Paul used for adoption in Romans 8 and verse 15 when he's differentiating between slaves or being adopted as sons and daughters. And by him, Paul says in that verse, we cry, Abba, Father, or Daddy, God. So adoption is a, is a powerful word here. Theirs is the divine glory. Israel experienced the Shekinah glory of God, the cloud by day and the fire by night. Theirs are the covenants, promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, pledges of divine protection and blessing. Uh, theirs is the receiving of the law. They were given the very words of God as healthy boundaries, healthy limits for their protection. Theirs is the temple worship. 
They had an access to a system of covering for sin and a place where the presence of God resides. All that was foreshadowing what Jesus, our Passover lamb or our Paschal lamb would accomplish when he came and died on the cross and rose again. Theirs are the promises, the prophecies of the Messiah who would come through them and that the world who would be blessed through him would experience. Theirs are the patriarchs, the the rich history and the ancestry of the nation of Israel, including people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And lastly, theirs is the human ancestry of the Messiah, the one who would come, God in the flesh. Think about this. If it were God's intention to outright reject Israel as his chosen people, then why would Paul be talking this way? Why would Paul be so upset that his people were, for the most part, rejecting the message of Yeshua? If God had no future purpose for Israel, then why worry about it? What's the big deal? And yet Paul is very worried about it here. In verse 6, he tells us that it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And, you know, many have taken these words to believe that the the true uh, Israel of God mentioned in Galatians 6 and verse 16 is actually the church. But But here in Romans, Paul seems to indicate that the true Israel of God are those who believe in Jesus, the remnant of Israel, who believe in Yeshua, the Messiah. But he also explains in chapter 9 that many in Israel will not believe in Yeshua, but they will stumble over him instead, relying on their own attempts to achieve righteousness through the law. And this is what Paul is so incredibly upset about, that although the Messiah came through the Jewish people and to the Jewish people, they have not received him wholeheartedly. And it causes him great pain, great anguish. Secondly, uh, we have Paul's passion. Look at Romans 10 and verse 1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. In Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about a righteousness by faith that is for everyone who believes. And this heart's desire, his heart's desire and prayer to God is that his people, the Jews, might be saved. Paul, who has brought the truth of the gospel all the way to Rome from Jerusalem and to many points between, is still carrying this burden and passion to see the Jewish people come to faith in Jesus. You know, usually when we quote from Romans 10, we're helping people to understand what it is they need to do in order to be saved or to begin a relationship with Jesus. Romans 10 verses 8 to 10 says this, the word is near you. It is in your heart. That is the word of faith that you are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. This is such a powerful scripture that is so key in helping people understand the basic steps to salvation through faith in Jesus. And yet we totally miss the fact that it is written in the context of Paul's passion and desire to see his people Israel come to faith in the Messiah. 
He is explaining this here to somehow try and help them to overcome the stumbling block that is in their way of righteousness through the law. He knows that not all of them will believe. And so he says this later in the chapter, but he also knows that many will become a part of this new humanity, this new family of God, where there is no difference between Jew and Gentile and where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, as he says here in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. So so Paul is pained. He's in anguish for his people Israel. Secondly, he has a passion and a desire for them to be saved. And then in chapter 11, he speaks of his of this promise, a great promise. Number three is Paul's promise. For anyone whose thought is that God has rejected his people Israel and replaced them with this new family of God, the church, Paul states the error of this thinking in chapter 11 in no uncertain terms. What does he say? Chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means, he says. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. I think that's pretty clear. And in verse 11 and following of this chapter, Paul goes to great lengths to explain the role that Israel actually played in bringing the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. So look what it says here in verses 11 and following. Actually, I'll start with verse 12. It says, but if their transgression, that is the Jewish people's transgressions, means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? What's Paul saying here? He's saying that that if the Jews' rejection of the message uh, is what brought fullness to the Gentiles, then what do you think is going to happen when they accept Yeshua? How much greater riches will their fullness bring? Drop down to verse 15. It says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. That's powerful. You know, we throw this word uh, revival around an awful lot. And, you know, we it's come to mean that we just, uh, you know, get together and have some powerful worship and really feel the amazing presence of the Spirit of God. And, and God speaks to our hearts and, and we call it revival. You know, we've had a good time in Jesus' presence. But revival actually means, you know, to revive, that something that's dead comes to life. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that when this happens, when the Jewish people accept Yeshua as Messiah, that their acceptance is going to bring about this amazing, amazing thing like life from the dead, revival. I love that idea. Revival is going to happen when the Jewish people turn to Yeshua as their Messiah uh, in, a, in a national turning. Paul says in, in Romans eleven twenty five to 27, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a, a hardening in part but until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Paul's saying that, that the, the doors open for the Gentiles to come because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. But at a certain point, when the full number, whatever that number is, of the Gentiles come in, he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved 
As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Drop down to verse 28, 29. It says, you know, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That is his gifting and his calling to the Jewish people. That's irrevocable. So they may feel like enemies to the gospel right now. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs because of this idea that God will never revoke his gifts and his calling. Still don't understand it all? Well, here's what I know. God still has a plan for Israel. And there is a deep connection between, between us as believers in Jesus and Israel and the Jewish people. We, we have to be able to see that. Paul had this amazing desire that the Jewish people would come to know Yeshua as their Messiah. And I believe it's going to happen. I believe that we're in this sort of prophetic time as we approach the end of days, that something is going to, to click, that, that the Gentiles will cause the Jews to be envious enough that they will begin to turn to the Messiah. And here's what I you know want you to know. It's happening today. It's happening right now that there are hundreds and thousands of Jewish people coming to know Yeshua as their Messiah. We know that in Israel, when this ministry began back in 1985, there might have been 500, maybe a thousand Jewish believers in Yeshua, in Jesus, in the entire country of Israel. Since we have been there and our founder, Clyde Williamson, was there and met with ministry leaders and connected with them and began to pray with them over this period of many years, 35 plus years, now there are 20,000 or more believers in the nation of Israel, Jewish believers, and as well, a number of, uh, of Arab Christian believers as well, four or 5,000 of them. And this is what's happening today in the land of Israel. This is why we work with uh, Jewish ministries on the ground in Israel and Arab Christian ministries on the ground in Israel to see the work of God, the work of the kingdom moving forward so that Paul's passion can come to fruition and that promise can come to pass. Isaiah 62, 6 says this, you who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Are you somebody who prays? Then this verse is for you, you who call on the Lord. You're to, you're to not rest or give God any rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. This is going to you know, take a while to happen, but I believe one day it's coming. Psalm 122, 6 and 7 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure, and may there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. I want to know this. Will you pray as your part in, uh, you know, bolstering this connection between the Christian faith and the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Will you pray for ministries in the land of Israel? Will you pray for leaders there? Will you pray for the peace of Jerusalem? You say, well, 
I don't really know what that means. Let me just tell it to you this way. I believe that peace will not truly come uh, to Israel and to the Middle East until the Jewish people turn and accept the Prince of Peace, Yeshua, into their hearts. That's when true peace will come, when true peace will reign in that part of the world. And I believe that day is coming, and I want to. I want you to pray with us that, that it will happen. And I'm just so grateful today that you've taken the time to listen to this message, to this podcast. And I believe, I believe that this can help to change the way you think about Israel and the Jewish people. And I believe that it will make an incredible difference when you start to pray. You know, when we pray, God does something in our hearts. He begins to change us. He begins to change our hearts. And as we pray, then, then we want to do something. We want to do more. And I believe that that's a great opportunity for us to come alongside the ministries there in the land of Israel and do our part as the church of Jesus Christ, the church of Yeshua, to uh, be arm in arm with the Jewish people and what God wants to do in his plans for the Jewish people and for the nation of Israel. So we, do, we just encourage you, uh, go to our website, firstcenturyfoundations.com, click on sign up. If you click on sign up, you will uh, be able to put your information in to receive our bi-monthly newsletter where you'll get prayer requests from ministry leaders across the country. And you can pray every day for a ministry leader in the land of Israel. And we would encourage you to just do that today. And thank you so much for listening. And I pray that God will bless you as you bless the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. God bless you. Shalom, and thank you for listening to Keeping It Israel. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it and consider supporting us to keep the conversation going. And just so you know, you can watch this podcast on our First Century Foundation's YouTube channel, where you will find all of our Keeping It Israel interviews and much more from First Century Foundations. So don't forget to subscribe. First Century Foundations exists to turn hearts around the world toward the land, people, and God of Israel. We support over 70 ministries in Israel who are doing an incredible work on behalf of the Kingdom of God in so many different ways. We also take tours to Israel and we would love to have you join us. Please visit firstcenturyfoundations.com to learn more about the work we do and how you can stay connected. Until next time, from all of us at First Century Foundations, God bless you and God bless Israel.